Good morning to you. Let's look in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. How many of you have read ahead and looked at Daniel chapter 11? A few brave souls. Did you get bamboozled with it? Me too. <laughs> um, I spent the better part of the last two weeks studying Daniel chapter 11. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. A couple weeks ago, I told, uh, I told our secretary, Misty, I said, I'm just going to print a, a running commentary uh, on this chapter. I'm going to pass it out on a Wednesday night. And uh, I'm not going to spend all this time going through all this historical stuff. And uh, this Tuesday, I felt so convicted. I was sitting in my chair in the living room, and I felt the Lord say to me, Henry, the devil fought for 21 days to keep Daniel from receiving this message. And who are you not to share this with the people? Because the devil doesn't want you to share it with Deep Springs either. And I thought, okay, Lord. Uh, that's all I need. So we're going to go into Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to do my best to provide some running commentary on this. I'm not going to take many rabbit trails. You can thank God for that. If you've got a, uh, your bulletin insert, it might be helpful to you. It's got a list of the Ptolemies and the Seleucid dynasties. But let's get right into it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, open up our understanding of the scriptures we pray. We thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse 1 actually is connected to chapter 10. Uh, this is the angel speaking here. This is not Daniel speaking. Uh, we don't know if it's Gabriel or whoever, but the angel says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And there's some confusion as to whether he's talking about strengthening Darius or strengthening Michael. Because if you remember, Michael was the one who had helped this angel in chapter 10. Nevertheless, we get to verse 2, and he says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through, the, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, there were more than four kings that stood up in Persia. But for our purposes today, we're only going to get to that fourth one because of how he plays into the overall arc of this chapter. After Cyrus would be his son Cambyses. He would be the Persian emperor after Cyrus. After Cambyses would be Pseudo-Smertus. He was actually an imposter, and he, he faked his way into the throne. That was the second one. The third uh, Persian emperor was a man named Darius Hystaspes. The fourth is one that you know, even though you may not know that you know him. He is Xerxes. He also goes by another name, starts with an A, and it's Ahasuerus. And he is the king in Esther's story. He's Esther's husband. Now, the reason he's significant is because he was wealthier, just like the, the angels predicted. And by the way, all of this is predictive prophecy. For us, it's history. For Daniel, it's future. Okay? So everything the angel's telling Daniel is in the future as far as Daniel's concerned. And secular historians will agree to this. And that's why they fight so, so hard to give Daniel a late date. But I believe that Daniel is properly dated uh, in that 6th century B.C. And uh, God gave him the future because we serve a God who knows the end from the beginning. Amen. 
So it's no big thing for him to predict the future because he already knows it. And so uh, this fourth king, Artaxerxes, he's richer than the rest, excuse me, uh, Xerxes, who's a Hasuerus. By the way, there's five uh, major kings in this chapter, and, and thankfully all their names start with an A. So that'll help us to remember. But Ahasuerus is the first one, and, and he was very wealthy, and he, he led an incursion against Greece, okay? Now, there were other Persian kings. We know after him was Artaxerxes I, or Longimanus, and he's the one that issued the decree to go rebuild the city and the wall. But as far as our story is concerned today, Ahasuerus is uh, he's notable because he led an incursion against Greece, which he was unsuccessful, but it laid the groundwork for Alexander the Great then to come after him. Even though he was not able to defeat the Grecians, Ahasuerus greatly offended the Greeks. They never forgot it, and they did get their revenge. Which brings us to verse 3. A mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That's the second king that starts with an A. Anybody want to guess who he is? Alexander the Great. Good job. He is the Grecian king. He's also uh, the notable horn in the, the, the vision of the, the ram and the he-goat in Daniel chapter 8. The, the, the uh, Alexander the Great, he's a mighty king. He will rule with great dominion and do according to his will. He conquered the known world. By the time he was 32 years old, he had stretched all the way uh, from Europe into India. And uh, he was the most powerful. He's a, he's a fascinating character. You should really do some research on Alexander the Great. He was uh, tutored by Aristotle, who was a student of Plato. And uh, Alexander was greatly influenced by Greek philosophy. And so he wanted to Hellenize the world. He wanted to uh, bring the Greek influence into the entire world. And, in, and he was very successful in doing so. However, in verse 4, it says, When he shall stand up, that's a military term, when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. At the height of his empire, uh, he, he comes to an, uh, a swift end. We know that Alexander died around the age of 32 or 33 uh, with an acute case of alcoholism. He was able to conquer everything except himself. And his kingdom should be divided toward the four winds of heaven. Now we know from history there were four generals that took over Alexander's empire. They were Cassander, and he took uh, Macedonia and Greece. There was Lysimachus, who took over Thrace and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. There was Ptolemy, who took over Egypt. And in our story, he'll be the king of the south. And then there was Seleucus, which uh, took Syria, or the territory of the north. And notice it says, not to his posterity. In other words, Alexander's kingdom would not be left to his heirs. Now, again, this is hundreds of years before it happened, Daniel, that, that Gabriel predicted this, that Alexander's heirs would not inherit the throne. And the reason being is he had an illegitimate son. He had another son that was born posthumously after Alexander died. He, and his only other heir was his brother who was mentally handicapped. And by the way, the generals had all three of them put to death. How convenient uh, after Alexander died. All right, not to his posterity and not according to his dominion, which he ruled. Uh, they were never going to uh, conquer the same territory that Alexander did. His kingdom should be plucked up even for others beside those, those four. All right, now, out of those four, we're going to deal with only two primarily. That is the kings of the south, who were the Ptolemies, and the kings of the north, who were the Seleucids. And the reason they're the most significant is because of their geographic relation to the nation of Israel. 
the, these, two, uh, these two dynasties are going to be warring for the next 100, 150, 200 years. And Israel's going to be caught in the middle of that. It's going to be a bloodbath. And Daniel is, if you remember, all of this is in response to a prayer, uh, a 21-day period of prayer and fasting that Daniel had done. And Daniel was concerned about the fact that Israel had not returned to rebuild the temple and why things were not progressing. And so in his mind, he's thinking that it's time for the, uh, Israel to be restored to her glory. But God's saying, no, the times of the Gentiles are far from over. There's going to be a lot more. And this vision is going to carry us way, way beyond the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, past Hitler, all the way to the Antichrist. He's the fifth king. We won't get to him today. Verse, verse 5. The king of the south, and that's Ptolemy, that's Ptolemy uh, the first, so it's here, shall be strong, and one of his princes, that's uh, Seleucus Nicator, shall be strong, one of his princes, he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So eventually, uh, Seleucus becomes greater than Ptolemy. And Seleucus is situated now in the north, or Syria, Ptolemy in the south. Verse 6, and the end of years, by the way, there's about 50 to 60 years between verse 5 and 6. And we'll pick up steam with this as we go. At the end of years, they shall join themselves together. Now, here's, they're going to come together and make a treaty. Now, this is how they did things in the old days. Uh, if you had a beautiful daughter, uh, you could offer her in marriage to a, uh, uh, a, uh, another kingdom, and you could have peace. That's how Solomon had as much peace as he had during his realm. You know, all those wives that he had? It wasn't just that he had, you know, su such a tremendous love for women, which he did, but uh, these were political moves. That's why, that's why Solomon's reign was a reign of peace, but it came at a great price, of course. So what happened is the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. She shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he, and he that strengthened her in these times. Okay? Now at this point, the Ptolemy king is Philadelphus. And the king in the Seleucid dynasty is Antiochus Theos, which means Antiochus the god. These guys are on ego trips, weren't they? Man. Uh, anyway, so the daughter of Philadelphus is Bernice, Berenice. And he's going to offer her uh, to marry Antiochus Theos. There's only one problem. Antiochus Theos is already married. Sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? Uh, he's married to a woman named Laodicea, or Laodicea. So what happens is he puts away Laodicea, marries Berenice. But the king of the south, Philadelphus, passed away. And so after he, after he died, um, Antiochus Theos was minded to take his old wife back. And, uh, and so now her old husband becomes her new husband. <laughs> but the honeymoon didn't last long because she poisoned him. And, uh, and then she killed uh, Berenice and uh, killed all of her attendants. And that's, that prophecy came to pass. You can't make this stuff up. You know? This is what happened in verse 6. And the secular history bears this out. There's no question as far as the, the historicity uh, of this whole account. Okay? But the whole thing comes to nothing. Nothing is availed by this whole conspiracy. Then we get to verse 7. It says, But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against him, and shall prevail. Now the king of the north now is Callinicus. 
And the king of the south is Ptolemy Eurgates, which means benefactor. That's what his name means. So Eurgates, he's, uh, he's angry about what's happened to, uh, to his sister. And so he's going to come against the north. And he shall carry away captives into Egypt, their gods and their princes, with their precious vessels of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than, than the years of the north. And he did. Uh, Eurgates lived longer than Callinicus. Callinicus did not die uh, in battle. Callinicus actually fell off his horse and broke his neck. And the angel predicted this long before it ever happened. So Eurgates continued. And he carried away all these idols, probably 2,500 idols or so. Some of them have been, uh, had been captured by Cambyses, the Persian emperor, Cyrus's son. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. But his sons, and these, uh, the sons here are the sons of Callinicus. The sons of Callinicus shall be stirred up and shall assemble a great multitude of, of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. This is Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great. This is the third major A king. We've got Ahasuerus, Alexander, now Antiochus the Great. <clears throat> and the king of the south, which is this, at this point is Philopater or Philopater, however you pronounce it. I won't split hairs with you. I'm going to call him Philopater just because I want to. Um, move with choler or anger and shall come forth and fight with him even with the king of the north and he shall set forth a great multitude but the multitude shall be given unto his hand now from what I understand uh, there was a, about a 75 to 100,000 troops that were brought in uh, from the north to, uh, to attack uh, Philopater and he was not happy about this and they, uh, they went to battle with, with the tanks of their day you know what those tanks were, of their day were? They were elephants. <laughs> it was like uh, one, one guy had like 75 elephants and the other had 100 elephants. Can you imagine this? And we thought P.T. Barnum was cruel, you know. But uh, bad joke, I'm sorry. But, but the elephants were used as battering rams in those days. And, and just imagine all these elephants running around the nation of Israel, you know, trampling everything. Um, the king of the south shall be moved collar fight with him with the king of the north but the multitude shall be given unto his hand and when he hath taken away the multitude his heart shall be lifted up and he shall cast down many ten thousands but he shall not be strengthened by it history tells us that Philopater did not capture Antiochus the great uh, actually he's known for being indolent for being lazy and and history uh, records this well so far so good but Antiochus the great is not happy about this says the king of the north shall return and he shall set forth a greater multitude so let's take let's take more guys with us now more elephants and shall certainly come after certain years history tells us there was 13 years after 13 or 14 years with a great army with much riches and in there's in those times there shall stand up against the king of the south also the robbers of thy people who is your people the jews daniel's people they shall stand up against the king of the south also, the robbers of your people, and shall exalt themselves to establish the vision. But they shall fall. Now, why are they trying to help the Syrian king? Because they're hoping to gain their independence. They're hoping they can get out from under the yoke of Egypt. But unfortunately, the scripture says they shall fall. So instead of being liberated from Egypt, they became tributaries to Syria. Um, you can't make deals with the devil. Have you figured that out? 
because he'll always change the terms with you. And so now Israel is under tribute uh, to Syria. So the king of the north, and again, this is Antiochus the Great, shall come and cast up a mound or a siege, take the most fenced cities. And the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people. Neither shall there be any strength to withstand. So Antiochus is successful here. But he that comes against him shall, uh, and, and against him is Ptolemy the, the fifth, uh, who is Epiphanes, shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. He shall stand in the glorious land. What is the glorious land? Anybody? It's not New Jersey. It's not Peachland. It's Israel. Thank you. <laughs> Which by his hand shall be consumed. So notice Israel's going to suffer at the hands of, the, of, of this, uh, this king. It says, in, now, when we get to verse 17, we're going to look at Antiochus uh, being threatened now. He shall set his face to enter the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. Now, interestingly enough, the southern king here, the Ptolemy, uh, Epiphanes, Ptolemy V, you know how old he is at this point? He's, uh, history tells us he's seven years old. Heavy lays the crown, huh, on a seven-year-old. So we're seeing that, that, uh, that age-old peacekeeping strategy again, aren't we? It says that, um, that Antiochus the Great, in verse 17, is going to give him the daughter of women. Now, this, is, uh, this phrase means the woman who's the epitome of femininity. Her name, by the way, is Cleopatra. The Cleopatra, uh, it is best well-known, uh, this is her ancestor. This is not the most famous Cleopatra, but this is her ancestor. And so uh, Antiochus gives Cleopatra to this young Ptolemy in marriage, and he thinks that he's going to have a spy in the castle. But here's what happens. Notice it says, she shall not stand on daddy's side, neither shall she be for him. She'll be loyal to her husband. And eventually he would grow and they would consummate the marriage. At, a, at an appropriate time, and I won't, I won't belabor the point there. Let's move on. Um, so she's loyal. Verse 18, after this shall he, versus, this is Antiochus the Great, shall turn his face into the isles, shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. And without his own approach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Now, Antiochus the Great now is uh, venting his anger against um, uh, Thrace and Greece and Asia Minor, which is again modern day Turkey. But he meets a, a stalemate and he is forced to accept terms of peace. And he's not happy. And actually, he's going to become a tributary of Rome now. Now the Romans say, you know what? Uh, not only are we going to tell you you got to leave, but you're also going to have to pay us tribute a thousand talents of silver every time you see us. And it says, Then shall he turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found, in verse 19. Antiochus the Great, he, went, he was so desperate for money that he went and he plundered the temple of Jupiter, his own people. He plundered his own temple. And the people were so angry, guess what they did? They killed him. So Antiochus the Great is no more. All right, then we get to verse 20. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes. Why do we need to raise taxes? Be <laughs> they need money because he owes Rome. They owe, they owe Rome a lot of money. So he's got to raise taxes in the glory of the kingdom. 
And it says, uh, and, and so this guy who raises taxes, this is uh, Seleucus Philopater. Seleucus IV Philopater. And it says, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Well, guess what? You know how he died? His associate, who is Heliodorus, who helped him in his taxation campaign, Heliodorus poisoned him. So he died not in battle, but by betrayal. How about that? God knows the, the end from the beginning, doesn't he? Then we get to verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person. That brings us to our fourth king, and that's where we'll stop today. And everybody said hallelujah. His name is Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. This name literally means Antiochus, the God, God manifest. Epiphanes means God manifest. Again, these guys are on a big ego trip here. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, the Jews had another name for Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, and that means Antiochus the madman. And he was. He was a, a, a very unstable individual. So now a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, okay? So he comes to the throne by intrigue. He's not a rightful heir to the throne, but he lies his way into power. Now he's important in our story, Antiochus Epiphanes, because he is the prototype, he's the type of Antichrist. And so we can learn a lot from the, the campaign of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. He's going to be much like the coming Antichrist. And it says that with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown, overflown from before him and shall be broken. Yea, also the prince of the covenant. This is a uh, phrase referring to the high priest who was Onias III. And uh, Israel is not a monarchy at this point. They're not able to establish the monarchy, but they're a theocracy under the high priest. And so Antiochus gets rid of Onias, who was a godly man, and replaces him with this man named Menelaus. Who he, and he obtained the high priest uh, status by bribery, and he was Hellenistic. He sought to Hellenize the Jews. And it says, after the, uh, the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, and he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. You know what's interesting to me is how uh, sometimes it's just a few people that make such a big deal. You know, it was only a handful of people that got Jesus crucified on that sham of a trial that night. You know, it's just a handful of people that did that. Just a handful of people sometimes that passed the most ungodly legislature. Just a handful of liberal, ungodly judges that make all kinds of ungodly laws in our country. Just, just a handful. That's all it takes, folks. It's just a few, just a minority of people with evil agenda can, can accomplish great things. And notice again how he starts out small but becomes big. That's how Antichrist, remember? There's ten horns, and then out of the ten horns comes what? A little horn. He comes out of obscurity. Then he becomes a big deal. He becomes a raging monster. Okay? So that's why it's fruitless for us to play that game, pin the tail on the Antichrist, because he's going to come out of obscurity. If my Bible reads the way I think it does. All right. Verse 24. He shall enter peaceably upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and the spoil and riches. Yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. So how is he different? Well, here's what he does. He's a, he's a modern-day Robin Hood. He goes and he, goes, uh, he robs the fattest places of the province, and he uses the money to bribe people, to gain influence, to gain power. He steals from the rich and gives to the poor. 
That sounds noble unless you're rich, <laughs> unless you've worked for what you have. All right, verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. Now, at this point, the king of the south is Ptolemy the sixth, which is uh, either Philometer or I'm going to call him Philometer just because I want to. Philometer. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Philometer had, uh, he had uh, traitors in his own entourage. They shall forecast devices against him. He had uh, treachery. All right. Now we're going to watch Antiochus' Egyptian campaign. Verse 26. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat, that's uh, Philometer, shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. And both these kings' hearts shall be, shall be to do mischief. This is Philometer and Antiochus. And it says now they're going to sit down at the table to make a truce, to make a treaty. And they shall speak lies at one table. That sounds like the United Nations, doesn't it? You know how many treaties have, have lasted? How many peace treaties have lasted over the years? Zero. <laughs> Every peace treaty that anybody ever makes gets broken eventually. And, it's, it's, and that's no different. And this is the same way Antichrist is going to come to power, right? Through peace, he's going to destroy. When they shall save peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them and they shall not escape. They speak lies at one table. It shall not prosper. For yet the time, yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Notice God's in control. It's a time appointed by God. Then shall he return into his land. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. He returns to Syria with great riches, and his heart shall be against the Holy Covenant. This is the Jewish people. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Now, a lot of this, we're almost finished here, a lot of this historical narrative you can learn about in the book of First and Second Maccabees. Now, I will tell you this very cautiously. Those books are not considered inspired by God, but they would be useful for historical uh, knowledge. But the, book, the apocryphal books are not considered inspired by God. I do not hold to the inspiration of the book of Maccabees. I would, I would look at it much in the same way I would look at Webster's Dictionary. It's not inspired by God, but boy, it'll sure help you when you're in a pinch and you don't know what words mean. Okay. Now, at the time appointed, appointed when? By God, verse 29. He shall return. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former as the latter. In other words, he won't be successful this time. And why not? Well, there's a fourth empire on the horizon. <laughs> Empires come and go. And who's that fourth empire? Say it louder. Starts with an R. Rome, thank you. For the ships of Kittim, this is the Roman navy here. The ships of, uh, of Rome or Kittim shall come against Antiochus. Therefore shall he be grieved. Just a quick word on this. When the commander meets uh, Antiochus at Cyprus, history records that the, the Roman uh, soldier that he came into, the general, that he, he, he drew a circle around Antiochus with a sword. He drew a line in the sand, a, a circle. And, he, and Antiochus, he offered him terms of peace. He said, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to go back home. Okay? You can't do this anymore. And Antiochus said, I'd like time to think about it. And so this soldier drew a line in the sand, drew a circle around Antiochus, and he said, you cannot step outside of this circle until you make your decision. And he did, and he went back home. Pretty wise decision. But the bad news is, when he leaves, it says at the end of verse 30, 
He's moved with indignation against who? The Jewish people. When all else fails, blame the Jews. That's what everybody does. That's what they always do. When all else fails, you know, you, you got all these, ter- these demon-possessed people over in the Middle East, but, but the average person will tell you the problem is Israel. Oh, they just, you know, here they are, the si- a size really less than the state of New Jersey, and all they want to do is just exist. Uh, they're not looking to expand and conquer, but that's not good enough for, for most of the nations. Okay. All right, so he goes against the Holy Covenant. He should return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Well, who are those? Those are apostate Jews. These are guys who were influenced by Menelaus, that Hellenistic high priest that came to the throne by, uh, or came to power by bribery. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Here, here is that famous... Uh, incident called the abomination of desolation and and it's going it's happened in history and jesus said it will happen again in prophecy we know this because many years later in matthew 24 jesus said when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by daniel the prophet let the reader understand so this was an this was a uh, uh, abomination of desolation in history but there will be one in prophecy so that's why antiochus the fourth is a type of antichrist he's not antichrist that's what replacement theologians will say is that antiochus was the antichrist but as we'll see next time there's a whole lot of stuff that antiochus did not do that antichrist will do okay uh and by the way uh, the the abomination that makes desolate here's some things that antiochus the fourth did he forbade he, he forbade the people to uh to to keep the law he destroyed copies of the law anywhere he could find it uh he killed anybody that was trying to observe the law of god he uh but but the worst thing here he sacrificed a pig on the altar and he sprayed the blood all over the the temple and he commanded the priest or he, he forced the priest to eat pork and but the abomination of desolation he set up an altar of zeus uh the the romans call him jupiter but uh zeus olympus he sets up an idol in the holy of holies and that's what the Antichrist is going to do too. The only difference is the Antichrist, he's not going to set up an image of Jupiter. It'll be his image. You'll have to worship him uh, or, or be killed. But that's the abomination. Verse 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt with flatteries. Again, the apostate Jews. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And you know that's true no matter what time in history it is. I don't care what what we go through, what kind of persecution, what kind of difficulty. These are challenging times, are they not? I mean, they are. But I believe that the people who know their God are going to be okay. I do. I believe that the people who know their God are going to be strong and do exploits. And this speaks of the Maccabean Revolt, verse 33. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. These were called the Hasidians or the Hasidim. Now, don't confuse them with the modern Hasidic Jews that have the long beards at the Wailing Wall. You know, going back and forth, but it's a different group. But they were teaching the law, and this was something that Antiochus had forbidden, but they taught the word of God anyway. And that's what we have to do. There may come a time when it's against the law to preach the Bible here in America. I mean, that's, it's not that far-fetched, really. Uh, it's really not that far-fetched. And, and what are we going to do? Are we going to just cave in, or are we going to keep preaching the word of God? They told Peter not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, and Peter said, look, we've got to obey God instead of man. 
Uh, we are subject to the law of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. We're to be subject unto the governors and those who are appointed over us. But that comes to a screeching halt when we're told to violate the laws of God. And so when they tell us that we can no longer assemble, when they tell us we can no longer preach the word of God, then it's time to obey God rather than man. All right, thank you for your support. <laughs> we're almost done here. All right. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Now, verse 34, now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help. Who's that help? These, these are the Maccabean, uh, those who led the Maccabean revolt, the sons of Mattathias. The most famous one is Judas Maccabeus. His name means the hammer, Judas the hammer. And, and it's, it's actually exhilarating if you get a chance to read about the Maccabean revolt because these guys, they were like a guerrilla warfare. And they just gave Antiochus epiphanies a fit. Everywhere they found Antiochus, they, they attacked him and they defeated him and brought him to nothing. They utterly ruined him. I just, I love the story. And every year in Hanukkah, remember that Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication, which is an, a remembrance of what the Maccabean Revolt accomplished. All right. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. That's talking about the apostate again. Verse 35. And some of them of understanding shall fall. You know, sometimes you do the right thing and bad things still happen. The world struggles with this. That's that age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the biblical answer is that there are no good people. There's none good, no, not one. That's the biblical answer. But I understand where they're coming from. And it seems like the people of God have more difficulty than the people who don't know the Lord. Do you know that's biblical? The Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We must through much tribulation, Paul said in Acts, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't mean the seven-year tribulation, but it means the difficulties of life. You and I are going to go through, but here's what it's for. The difficulties of life is, number one, to try them, to test our faith. A faith that cannot be tested can't be trusted. You know, our faith is going to be stretched. And to purge us, when God gives, brings us through difficult times, it's not to destroy us, it's to purify us. I mean, it's always the case. And to make them white. You know God's ultimate goal for us? The ultimate goal of suffering is not just so that we can suffer. Not just so that we can say we've been through so much. But it's so that we can be holy. We can be holy. God's, even God's discipline is for our holiness. And here's the last clue that tells us that what we've read has been historical, but there's coming a time prophetic. Notice this phrase, and to make them white, even to the time of the end. In other words, Antiochus' story is wrapping up here because it is yet for a time appointed. The Antichrist is not Antiochus Epiphanes. You know one way we know for sure it was not Antiochus Epiphanes? Think back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Think back to Daniel's vision. Where did Antiochus Epiphanes come from? What, what dynasty was he from? He was not from uh, 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 Babylon, right? He was not from Medo-Persia. What was he from? Greece, right? Alexander's generals, he had the four. Seleucus, the Seleucid dynasty was out of Greece. Where does the Antichrist come from? Then the fourth empire, which is what? Rome. And again, I mentioned this Wednesday night. It doesn't mean that the Antichrist will be Italian, okay? 
lot of people make that mistake. doesn't mean that he'll be Italian, but it means he'll come out of that Roman Empire, which had a western leg and an eastern leg, and it was a vast territory. And that's where he'll come from, is that, that, uh, that land on the Mediterranean. And he will not be a Jew. He will be of Gentile descent. And I don't have time to get into all of that right now, but uh, hopefully you found this beneficial. One thing that we learn from this is that history is his story. His story. One interesting footnote for those who are, uh, who are questioning about uh, the validity and, and wondering about the date of Daniel. You know that King Ptolemy Philadelphus, that second in the dynasty? He is the one who commissioned the, uh, the translation of the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. 72 scholars. The Septuagint is just a fancy word for 70 or 72. Uh, he, Ptolemy Philadelphus, he's the one who commissioned the translation of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Most of the Jews spoke Greek, by the way. They didn't speak Hebrew. They, spoke, they used Hebrew much in the same way a Catholic uses Latin, just for religious rites and stuff. They, most, of, uh, most of the Jews spoke Greek, and they wanted a, a Bible in their own language. Okay? If you've ever read in your Bible, you ever seen in the margin maybe, you'll see X, uh, what is it? LXX in the margin. Whenever you see LXX, that means 70. It means the Septuagint. Most of the time, the, new, in the, the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. I had a quick brain freeze there. I was like, Roman numerals. <laughs> when you see 70, that means it's the Septuagint. Now, why is that important? Well, here's, here's why it's important. Because Daniel was in black and white in the Septuagint even before Antiochus the Great, before Antiochus Epiphanes, before any of these other guys. So all that late date stuff, and, and I could give you a million other reasons why, that stuff just won't hold water. It was in black and white. But you know, even if I didn't have that, I've got Jesus Christ, who says that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. Notice all those time stamps in the book of Daniel? In the third year of Jehoiakim, you know, in the first year of Darius, in the first year of Cyrus. There's all these historical mile, mile markers in the book of Daniel. And it's, it's like a billboard flashing to say, look, God declares the end from the beginning. He knows. History is his story. Would you stand? And I'm so glad I didn't just skip over this. And I don't know, you know, why we needed to hear this information, but we did. We need it because it's God's word. And God's in control. And maybe this will galvanize your faith. Here's one thing we know for sure. If God knows the end from the beginning, he's got your life in, his, in the palm of his hand. Amen. There's nothing you're going to face this week that's going to catch God by surprise. He's with you. And he will be with you to the end. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end. We can count on him. Now, just as surely as, as God's word became true, Jesus Christ is coming again. And I'll tell you what, your life is a vapor. Mine is too. I was getting on social media this week, and, I, and I'd like to get on and wish happy birthday to people on, uh, on Facebook. It's about the most fruitful thing I do on Facebook is, is wish people a happy birthday. And, and it was very interesting and very sad to me. One day this week, three of my classmates, younger than me, were deceased. And I wasn't able to wish them a happy birthday here on earth. And they were not COVID-related deaths. Listen, these are perilous times. And our lives are just a vapor. We're here for a little time. None of us has the promise of tomorrow. None of us. 
And we only have this one opportunity to get it right with God. And there is eternal punishment for the wicked, for those that don't know Christ. And there's eternal bliss for the righteous, those who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if you, if you have not repented of your sin today and called on the name of Jesus Christ and believed, and I mean totally surrendered to him. I'm not talking about paying lip service to him. I'm not talking about a religious ritual. I'm talking about a new birth where you say, God, I'm done doing it my way. I turn my life to you. I make a full commitment to you. To repent is to change your mind and to go for God. If you've not done that today, the Savior is waiting for you. Would you come?